Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial experts John and Michael Parise from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Today's going to be a great podcast. They have a special guest and that is Rick J from BTA Advisors, which is the division of Capstone Headwaters. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon, Eric. Rick, are you with us? I am. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited. Uh, John and Michael, you've known Rick for a while. We were talking before the podcast. You've known him for quite a few years. Why did you bring him on today? Yeah, Rick is not only a dear friend, but he's also a professional. We outsource uh, the ESOP strategy to as a go-to group. As, you, as you've heard in previous podcasts, mm -hmm. we do most of our work for clients and we outsource some of the specialists to do the work. And Rick's one of those gentlemen. So he's, uh, he's one of those guys with all the knowledge, right, Rick? Well, let's hope I don't embarrass myself or you guys today. <laughs> sure, that won't be an issue. <laughs> Let, let's jump in here, Rick. We actually, a few podcasts ago, kind of teased you, at least as being a, a special guest uh, for, for the ESOP world. And, and ESOPs are something that when we talk with our families, they've, they've heard of the concept of an ESOP. Some are more knowledgeable about what that concept is than others. But in general, probably to start, what sort of options from a business owner standpoint do they have from an exit a strategy for their business because ESOP is one of those strategies, but it's not the only one, correct? That's correct. Um, you know, when you own a business, when you think about creating some liquidity, when you're ready to exit, um, and sometimes it's not always exiting the business, but it's, you know, deleveraging. Um, and that's one thing that you guys are very effective at helping clients diversify their personal net worth. And unfortunately, with a lot of very successful business owners, the vast majority of their net worth is tied up in the illiquidity of their business, which creates a lot of planning challenges that uh, are faced by those clients as they continue to age. So exit planning is a, is a big segment of the industry. And when you think about it, um, the mid-market, which is made up of businesses that have um, annual revenues of under a half a billion dollars that are privately owned here in the U.S., is um, total capitalization of those companies is somewhere in the range of 10 to $11 trillion, um, which is, when you think about it, is sort of the equivalent to the S&P 500. So it's a, a very large segment of the market. And since these are privately owned companies, and you look at the aging population base, you know, exit planning is a critical component to planning, wealth planning, advisory planning, and consulting. Uh, along the lines of what your firm is just experts at doing. So the fact that you incorporate you know, the ideas of exit planning with your business clients, I think is a critical one and really differentiates you from some of your competitors in the market. Um, you asked the question about what are the options and, and really there, you know, there's a myriad of options, but it really gets broken down to four. Um, you can, if you own a business, you can sell to what they call a financial buyer, which is a private equity firm. In the industry that has some benefits it has some challenges depending on what your intent is um, the other option is you can find a strategic or what they call synergistic buyer somebody who may be a competitor that you might have either intellectual property you might have a patent or you might just have some a geographical footprint in controlling your marketplace that a competitor instead of coming in to compete with you would rather just buy you um, that's always an option um, sometimes a management buyout or internal sale can work effectively 
And if you've got uh, key people in the firm that have the bandwidth to run and manage the company, but that has some financial challenges associated with it. And then the last is really an ESOP. Um, And again, I'm assuming that you're looking to exit and looking to create some form of liquidity because the last option, and I had a call earlier today with a business owner that just ultimately said his plan all along was to work in his chair until the day he went face down in his chair and just to be thrown out in the backyard in a tree in a garbage can and, t- and hauled off and didn't really care what happened to the company. Hey Rick, that afterwards. sounds like me and Michael. That's what I said to Michael. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, no, John, we're, we're planning on stuffing you and preserving you. So, uh, you know, you're never going anywhere, but, 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 you know, the key to that is, you know, those are really the four options and, uh, and the ESOP tends to be a viable one. Um, when you've got an owner that has, you know, obviously is tax sensitive because the ESOP has some very unique tax attributes, which we'll probably talk about shortly. The other component of the ESOP is fundamentally different than the other options. It's an owner that really cares and loves the people that work for. Him. That really is what I say is is fundamental to where mm-hmm. ESOP makes sense. I know you and Michael have been involved in a number of transactions that we've we've helped your, you and your your clients on. And the bottom line is, you know, every one of them was very consistent. You know, they making money was important, but the driving force of why they wanted to consider the ESOP was really as it related to wanting to reward the employees that have helped them become successful. They wanted to provide them something they couldn't normally afford to give them, which you can do through the tax benefits of the ESOP. And they cared about these people. They you know, saw them in temple or church. They saw them at the YMCA. They saw, saw them at local youth events. And the last thing they wanted to see is the company dismantled and people lose their jobs if they were to sell out to somebody else. And that becomes the fundamental approach to where an ESOP can make sense. Well, that, Rick, that was great. But one thing that I think we actually overlooked is we use the acronym ESOP, but it, ESOP stands for an Employee Stock Ownership Plan. So, correct. I mean, that's and that's really what you're getting at with with the employee ownership or or this being a good option for businesses or business owners that really want to benefit their employees. So maybe take a, a, a minute or so and just explain exactly what an ESOP is and why it's called an employee stock ownership plan. Yeah, it's a good point. And sometimes, you know, all of us in the industry tend to get caught up in in acronyms that when we're talking to people that aren't in the industry, they kind of get confused. And so I appreciate you uh, sort of readdressing that. Yeah, In ESOP, which does stand for Employee Stock Ownership Plan, which is different than what you find in public companies in America, which are employee stock option plans. So an employee stock ownership plan is actually a qualified retirement plan. It falls under the same rules that govern 401ks, that govern um, profit sharing plans, and govern defined benefit pension plans. It falls under a federal guideline called ERISA, which um, supports the benefits of retirement retirement plans and retirement benefits for employees that work for companies. And so the employee stock ownership plan, although um, the employee is entitled to receive a benefit which is tied to the stock, it is a retirement plan. So as an example, um, when I use an analogy, for those of you that are have ever traveled to the southeast, there is a grocery store called Publix, P-U-B-L-I-X, which is, by all accounts, the most successful employee stock ownership um, plan company, employee-owned company in America. Um, it's been a, an ESOP or an employee-owned company for over 40 years, and it just has a different cultural mindset. The byproduct is, you know, if you're an employee that works for 30 to 40 years, and you start out of high school or out of college and you go to work within the grocery store chain, after a 30 to 40 year career, when you retire at at, uh, over the age of 55 with 30 years or at age 65 or later, you're 
retirement benefits tend to be well in excess of a million five a year, simply as a bagger or a checker or a cashier. So, you know, when you start looking at that level of retirement benefits that can get created for relatively minimum wage employees over a long career, it really creates the, the, the reason why ESOPs are so attractive for creating significant benefits for employees because publics as successful as they are without the benefits of the tax attributes and the nature of the way it works, um, you would never be able to provide that level of a benefit for the employees. So anyway, that's, that's, that's why they're so valuable from an employee. Yeah, that's a key piece. If you, if you recall the case we worked on just recently, one of the motivating factors was the retention and recruiting of key employees to that company. So the retention issue is pretty much overlooked, but that's powerful when you have to have this company grow and, and stabilize through the sale to the ESOP, that, that the employees are all involved in, and they, they are very active because they have an ownership stake in the growth value of the company for their retirement. So the, the better they make it, the more money they have in their in the coffers, but they have direct impact on that success as an employee. So they kind of build this, this, this culture around these ESOPs. It's dynamic to see, it's fascinating. And the client called me a few months ago and said, it's amazing to see my employees are now watching every dime on a job to make sure they're not wasting money because it's money wasted and it's part of their retirement. So it's an interesting uh, piece of it. I'm, a, I'm sure you find that uh, as a piece, Rick, in, in most of the plans you talk to, right? It, it is. And that's really where, you know, when I when I first get involved in talking to a company, one of the things I do like to do, and, and again, it's hard to do early in the stage because you haven't pulled the transaction. But, you know, as you know, because you've seen it, you know, very quickly after we do the transaction, we're meeting with the employees and really educating them on what it is that they're now part of, the fact that they have ownership in the company, the fact that, you know, the success of the company will directly benefit them versus in the past when you're just working for a W-2, you tend to be less inclined to, you know, you know, focusing on, you know, putting in that extra 15 or 20 minutes to clean up a job site. So I do want to bring up another point, John, you know, you're so articulate and you brought up a very valid point. And sometimes I overlook some of these key components, but I hop on a plane and I travel to three or four cities every week. And I, you know, I've done that for a long time. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, as somebody as astute as you and Michael are in re reviewing economic reports, you know, you look at these unemployment charts that show we're at, you know, 4.5 to 4.7% unemployment, and it's been, you know, continuing to decline. And, um, you know, when I when I travel the country and I'm in different cities, one of the things I try to focus on is, you know, what's really going on outside of the reports. And as I meet with business owners, one of the challenges that I see that they face, and it's the point you just brought up, it's the the, the retention of the employees. If you're a contractor, you're in the construction trade industry as an electrical contractor, a plumbing contractor, mechanical HVAC, or I met with a, um, a defense contracting firm today that has a bunch of very smart software engineers and engineers that work for them. One of the questions I ask the owner and it's one of the questions I ask every owner is, you know, how, what are your challenges of running the business and how difficult is it to keep your employees and how difficult it, is it to go ahead and recruit and bring on other qualified people? And the response is, you know, you know, I don't care what you read in reports, but, you know, we're at 100% employment. You know, we can't afford to lose anybody. And when we do, it's very difficult for us to find somebody else to replace them. And, and the challenge as an owner is you can't just keep paying people more and more money each and every year based on the fact that the economy is strong and you're trying to retain your employment force so you can continue to bid out the jobs and do quality work. The one thing ESOPs do and what they've successfully done over the last 40 to 45 to 50 years 
is it creates that ownership mindset. Employees are less inclined to jump ship when somebody offers them another 25 or 50 cents an hour. And that's part of the, the strength of what an ESOP does is it culturally changes the mindset. So employees, as you just identified, start thinking like the owner, not just in growing the company and raising profits, but in the fact that they become very loyal to the firm, different than they have been historically in the past. That's a great point. And, and, well, you you really alluded to it on a on a few times or a few occasions, Rick, in terms of the the ideal candidate for an ESOP, one that really cares about the employees of the firm and, and wants to build that culture. But what other, I guess, characteristics of the business do you need to have really to consider an ESOP? I imagine it doesn't. Not every business really would either qualify or it makes sense for financially. How, how does that work? Yeah, great point. I mean, the characteristics of the philosophy are important, but also financials are important too. So, you know, as they say in the real estate world, the three most important things in real estate are location, 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 location. location. absolutely. <laughs> in an ESOP, because, you know, in most cases you're doing what they call a leverage transaction. We're actually borrowing money both through bank notes and seller notes. So we're leveraging up the company. Cash flow is the most important. So the three most important things then for an ESOP is Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Absolutely. So part That's of what good, we look at. Yeah. I'm so. pretty quick. I, I, <laughs> That was very good, Michael. Yeah, pick up what he's throwing down. So part of what we look at when we're when we look at whether a client and a business is a candidate is sort of that level of balance. And again, you know, without getting um um, spiritual on the phone, but if you think about the cross, uh, when you go into church, you know, you've got the the four corners of the cross that crosses the heart. There must be, you know, and I and I heard this sermon recently. There must be a, a level of balance of the importance in your life. And again, everybody creates their own level of criteria of what the balance is. But in an ESOP or in a, in a business owner, the the idea of doing well for the owner, doing well for the employees, doing well for the community, and doing well for the customers of the company is, in my mind, sort of the level of balance. And when you've got those characteristics as a shareholder. Fundamentally, then philosophically it fits. Then the function is, does it have enough value, enterprise value, and is there enough cash flow to support the level of debt that's going to be taken on to the balance sheet of the company um, to be able to meet the ability to be able to meet the ability of using that free cash flow that gets created to meet the debt obligation to pay off the debt that is used to buy out the selling shareholders. And that really becomes a, that's an economic analysis. It's relatively straightforward and easy to do. The other part of that where companies, I would say, that don't make good candidates are, are companies that have very volatile cash flow. So a real estate developer is an example who is um, using leverage money to run operating expenses for two or three years before they complete a project and then has massive windfalls of profits. They tend to be not good, effective ESOP, leveraged ESOP candidates simply because, again, we need consistent cash flow to meet the debt obligations versus um, volatile cash flow. So you can have a very successful business, very high enterprise value, but but it's modeled and structured in a different methodology or in a different way than one that would produce consistent cash flow that would make, a, make economic sense to look at leveraging the company, borrowing money both through seller and through senior debt, and being able to meet that obligation over a 10 to 12-year period of time. Yeah, now that we got past the cultural side of an ESOP, one of the things that's always powerful is the ability to uh, make this transaction tax-free to the business owner. And the future income coming into the organization would also be tax-free. So talk about the tax benefits of an ESOP and how it compares to the 
other three options that you laid out earlier that do not have those tax benefits. Yeah, that's a great point, and I'm glad we're addressing it now. So if I first address the other three options, either an internal buyout or management buyout, um, a strategic or synergistic sale with a competitor or complementary company or a private equity, any of those types of transactions are going to create capital gain requirements at best, both state and federal, to the selling shareholders above their basis, um, which oftentimes in private companies is is relatively low. So the vast majority of the, the sale is stock sale and gain. So there's a relatively substantial capital gain tax treatment, both state and federal in that circumstance. And then obviously, again, um, every form of acquisition is some form of leveraging, whether you're using private equity money that is financed through investor capital or you're doing a leverage uh, leverage transaction through an existing um, company or a management buyout that's going and borrowing money from a bank and the seller. They're all leveraging transactions, so to speak. And the byproduct is all of the companies, once they're purchased, the cash flow that gets generated, there is no deduction when you're buying stock. So if I buy, as an example, um, John, you own a manufacturing company and it's worth $20 million and I write you a check for $20 million and I finance it, the likelihood is, to keep it simple, that company's generating $4 million in taxable income. So five, which would be a multiple that it would sell for, five times $4 million is $20 million, which is how I come up with the value. If I'm going to finance that $20 million, and I'm doing so out of the cash flow that's created by the company, which is $4 million, but it's taxable, I'm going to pay approximately 50% in tax liability, so I'm paying $2 million in taxes, which only leaves me with $2 million of working capital that has that I have the requirement to meet the debt obligation. The bottom line is there's not enough free cash flow after tax that falls out of the bottom of the spigot to afford the debt and to give the company adequate working capital for it to meet its obligations and be able to grow. That's the problem with the other three transactions. In an ESOP transaction, as you alluded to, there's pretty significant tax benefits, and there's really four that are around the ESOP, but there's three that are actually critical inside the ESOP. The first and foremost is if you structure the transaction properly, which means that at the time of the stock sale, you sell your stock to the ESOP and you're a C corporation, and that's a whole different discussion of how that works. But if you're a C corp and you sell at least 30% of the stock that you own to your ESOP, you can elect what they call the 10, a 1042, which is the tax law that governs the ability to postpone the state and federal capital gains tax and ultimately eliminate it if you hold those replacement assets until death. And at that death, you get a step up in basis and your family then can inherit that, sell out the instruments and pay absolutely no capital gains tax on the original stock sale value that you received. So if you're in a state like New York or California or New Jersey, where you tend to have you know 32 to 37% combined federal and state tax rates, at the capital gain and ordinary income tax state levels, that can be very significant the bigger the transaction. So, so that's obviously one that really intrigues business owners that have low basis and high stock value on considering an ESOP over other transactions. And that's one of the ways that ESOPs are able to create equalization because I will say that usually in the private equity world and or in a strategic acquisition, the buyers are willing to oftentimes pay more than what we can validate in an ESOP transaction. But when you level out the playing field, you look at the capital gains, you're gonna have to pay at the higher multiple and the higher value versus the tax-free non-capital gain transaction in an ESOP, it tends to be somewhat comparable. And then it gets down to what's in the best interest of what you're trying to achieve. The next tax benefit has to do, and this really applies mostly when you're doing partial sales, 
or you're a C-corp and you have to stay as a C-corp for a period of time because of the corporate tax implications. The corporation gets a dollar-for-dollar deduction for every dollar of stock that is purchased by the ESOP. So if you're a $20 million company, and over a period of time, the corporation's getting a $20 million deduction off its income to support the ability of buying the stock. So, I mean, think about it from this perspective. If everybody on uh, that is a, is, a, is a working individual in America could actually go out on a personal basis and buy, you know, Facebook or IBM or Microsoft or Tesla stock, and for every dollar of stock they purchased, it reduces their taxable income by a dollar. What do you think the impact would be on the level of investing that would go on on a, on a personal basis? Hmm. Yeah. Have you calculated that? It sounds like you have the answer. <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. I, I just know how much more money I could probably convince my kids who are oh, now sure, working, yeah. in the, working in the marketplace to to try to save. But um, the last the last task benefit, I think, is um, as it relates to the corporation is the most valuable. And that is post-transaction. Um, if you are an S-corporation operating company. And up to the percentage of stock that is owned by the ESOP, and let's use the example of a 100% ESOP-owned company, the actual company itself is tax-exempt. So I know it's a hard thing to understand because we're not creating a not-for-profit company. It is a for-profit company that is no longer subjected to paying income taxes. And, and I've presented this to a number of CPA firms as part of CPE. And, uh, you know, many of them have, you know, I get this, when I make that st- statement, they get this look on their face as we've all experienced if you've lectured yes, um, where they're, where they're, where they're kind of like, what the heck is this guy talking about? And it's, you know, once, once I go through and explain it, it's pretty easy to understand. If you know, an S corporation produces, the CPA produces what they call an 1120S, which is the tax return that is filed by an S corp. And that S corporation creates what they call a K-1. And the K-1 is a form that is picked up by the individual shareholders as the income that is reported to them on the profits of the company. And they're personally responsible for paying the personal tax liability on that K-1 income. So, you know, as an example, if I have a corporation and let's assume for simplicity, I take 250,000 in salary. I obviously take that as salary and I've got withholding that comes out every paycheck. But let's assume at the end of the year, I get a million dollar K-1 distribution. That K-1 gets added to my tax return. So my taxable income less my itemized deductions would be 250,000 plus the millions, less my itemized deductions, and I have to pay taxes on the full amount. So once you're an ESOP, and if you're 100% ESOP, the K-1 still gets produced, the 1120S still gets produced by your CPA, but in turn what happens is the K-1 gets paid to the ESOP retirement plan. And under ERISA, the ESOP does not file a tax return. It files a reporting form called a 5500, and it reports to the Department of Labor because it's a tax-exempt entity. That is, in essence, why the ESOP um, is not subjected to taxes because it's an ERISA-qualified retirement plan and why the corporation doesn't pay any income taxes because the stock, which produces the K-1, is owned by the ESOP, which is a tax-exempt organization. So there's only two ways in America you can be a for-profit company and pay no taxes. We now know one is an ESOP. Do you know what the other one is? you got to tell us. It's a credit union. So it's one reason why banks tend to have a difficult time competing in in the marketplace with credit unions because they were received under congressional guidelines, favorable tax treatments to be able to provide benefits to employees that work for, started off initially large uh, large union organizations and uh, and federal uh, federal employees. 
And it's expanded from there. So you can see credit unions in every marketplace. But that's one reason why oftentimes credit unions can provide a higher rate of interest on their depository accounts and charge a lower rate of interest on their on their debt accounts simply because right. of the fact they're not subject to taxation. Well, that sounds like uh, that that credit union versus bank comparison, Rick, sounds I mean, if you're not if you're a company and you're ESOP, 100 percent ESOP owned and you aren't paying income tax, I imagine you have some of the same competitive advantages, correct, against maybe your competitors in the industry due to the fact that you aren't paying income taxes. Is that is that a fair statement to make? Absolutely. And, and you see it today more than I've ever seen it before because of the the competitive nature. And and I think what will happen is, you know, we all know and I think everybody suspects there will be a point in time that we will enter another recession, whether it's three years from now, five years from now, a year from now. Nobody knows the timing, but, you know, there are, there are cycles that take place in our economy. And so when, when, when we're running at 100 percent employment and we're running where everybody and all companies tend to be do tend to be doing very well today, the positive is that's important, but, you know, maybe not as important. But think about it when things get tough. Um, so think about that 2009 to 2011 time frame where business was trying to recreate themselves. Right. Um, ESOP companies tended to do very well um, during tougher economic conditions than non-ESOP companies because one is all the employees understand what's going on and are looking out for all of their best interests because they're all shareholders and they want to see the company succeed. But more importantly, that nature of the tax implication. Think about it today. Think about the company SAIC, which is one of the largest federal defense government contracting firms out of Washington, D.C. Um, they're 100% ESOP company. When you think about that company itself, when they want to win projects and every project that they get that that they look at is a bid project, when you're bidding on defense contracting and government contracting work, it's always bid. Think about it. You know, in that world, your biggest expense is the payroll and your intellectual value, people that you're paying to do their work. Your second biggest expense is the profits and the taxes on those profits. If you can avoid paying taxation and you want to win a project, imagine how competitive you can be. And then just apply that to the construction industry, the development industry, manufacturing, where they're bidding per project. You know, that really put, provides them a significant competitive advantage in the market, not only when times are good, but also more importantly, when times are tough and everybody's fighting for work. You know, Rick, I mean, listen, the dynamics of an, of an ESOP are, are tremendous. And I think... Uh, on its very nature, it's complex from a structure standpoint. Why don't you talk a little bit about how complex it is and you need a good team of people to work uh, on the ESOP strategy for a firm because it is tedious to get all the pieces together and you really need a group of uh, of good advisors working along with your firm as an example. You need a good banking relationship. You need certain things in place to make it work. You want to talk about the complexity of it a little bit and, and, and the dynamics of working with a good team. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I, you know, as a, as a guy who's in sales, sometimes I hate talking about necessarily the, the, the things that make it difficult, but you know, the one downside, I guess one of the key downsides to an ESOP is its complexity. And so from that perspective, you just have to be prepared as a business owner that, you know, anytime any strategy provides the level of tax benefits that um, tax strategies tend to ESOP being one that is, uh, labored with significant tax benefits, um, both to the individual selling shareholder and the company, there's going to be a lot of governance and requirements associated to follow in order to comply with that. And that's part of what makes an ESOP, when you're looking at it, as compared to just walking away and selling to a private equity or strategic buyer, um, a more challenging transaction, which is why the philosophy needs to be there and what you're trying to accomplish. But that being said, um, there's a lot of pieces to an ESOP, and it begins with 
doing an analysis on the front end to one, determine is the transaction a viable one for the company economically? And once we determine that it is philosophically, and then once that is done, it's determining is the company capable of taking on additional debt? Um, because remember, it's a, it's a leveraged transaction. We're borrowing money both from a bank and from a selling shareholder through a seller note to um, to put the transaction together. So the key is you've got to have a team that one, um, first and foremost, understands and can do proper valuation work and has that part of the team internally. That's absolutely critical. So, um, And you want it to be internally to the firm because having that internally is going to help in the negotiation through the transaction because they're part of the team that's handling the negotiation. Um, there's another whole side to the transaction, and that is, as you, John, you and Michael know, um, the employees by design and under best practices under the Department of Labor guidelines need to be represented independently. And it's it's important that that representative is truly independent. They're called trustees, and a trustee is somebody who is hired by the ESOP trust itself um, to represent the employees. And that that trustee then brings and hires their own team. They hire a valuation specialist. Some of the trustees we use do have internal valuators, but many of them do not. But they have and either have internally or hire an outside valuation team like what we have internally that does the work for us and our clients on the sell side. The, they also hire um, in, uh, representation in legal counsel that's going to help in evaluating the transaction, reviewing legal documents, and making sure all the documents are properly prepared, both bank documents, selling documents, and transactional documents, to make sure the transaction is compliant with uh, the Department of Labor guidelines, the IRS guidelines, and is consistent with what the intent of the transaction is designed for. There is ERISA counsel that tends to be hired as part of the transaction, and the ERISA counsel is somebody who actually designs and implements and puts together the actual ESOP retirement plan trust to comply with with the wishes of the client based on what they're trying to design, how it gets designed, how the benefits get accrued to the employees. And there's a lot of flexibility in that when you're working with somebody who knows what they're doing like us. So it's not always compensation based as John, Michael, you've seen with some of the strategies we've developed. Sometimes it's length of service. Sometimes it's a combination of length and service and compensation. Sometimes there's base compensation methodologies. It really depends on who you were trying to reward within the company without being discriminatory. Then you've got transaction counsel that's got gets hired on top of that. You've got banks, and sometimes clients want to work with their own local bank to do the transaction, and that's fine. We provide assistance um, in that scenario. Um, oftentimes, clients want to shop the transaction because when you're looking with looking at larger transactions, bank financing can be challenging. Um, it's important you work with teams that have bank experience from an investment banking standpoint, negotiate the best terms and conditions because it's not just getting capital. It's the terms and conditions that come with the cost of that capital. You yeah, know, personal yeah, uh, you so guys, Rick, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you actually act as the quarterback because it's critical that everybody listening to this podcast, that the, the, the buyer and the sellers are kind of to the right. Uh, and this team comes together and builds out the ESOP strategy, does all that uh, legwork behind the scenes. So the business owner really doesn't get too much involved with it, although we've had a couple of cases where they wanted to be in the loop to watch over things, but, but you actually act as that quarterback. Am I correct? Yes. And again, with a team like yours, you know, you guys take on a wonderful part and you know, are able to offload a lot that the client normally would want to be involved in to be um, both to make sure that their interests are being protected as the transaction is taking place. But yes, somebody has to quarterback the transaction because most of the failures that we see in the industry are when a, 
a business owner who um, has a good CPA or has a, a good attorney and they hear the idea of an ESOP and they say, well, we can do that. We've done an ESOP before. We can handle the transaction. And, you know, this is such a complex and such a sophisticated and such a, a legally bound transaction that when you're not working with a firm that does this day in and day out, it's like going into McDonald's and anticipating that you're going to come out eating a, a meal that was cooked by a chef at Morton Steakhouse. It's just, it's just, not, it's, you're going to get what you pay for in that scenario. And unfortunately, in those cases, most of those transactions fall apart or they don't end up working the way everybody intended them to. So, um, yes, we quarterback the transaction and try to keep the client out of the fray and making sure every piece of the component of the transaction is done effectively and efficiently and cost effectively, most importantly. Uh, Rick, that was great. I mean, it, it, it is a great technique, a great tool for family planning. Uh, as you know, we get, we get involved with uh, families that have options to look at ESOPs as a strategy, but I think anybody listening, uh, it could be a very, very valuable approach uh, if, and, if and when you decide you want to um, sell the company. Yeah, I guess in closing, what I would say, and, and you've heard me say this before, you know, the, the reason why I'm in the ESOP space, because as you know, I've known you guys a long time and have been in, in a number of different areas, owning my own financial services firm and being involved in a bank startup. And um, But, you know, the reason I, I, I'm in this space today is, is a couple of reasons. One is it's a fun place to work, and this is a explosively growing industry. But it's it's one of the ways that I can I feel I can give back. I, I look at ESOPs as doing well by doing good. And what I mean by doing well by doing good, every party that touches the transaction does well by doing good. The selling shareholders will do will do as well through the ESOP as any methodology of the sale. Um, and sometimes even better because of the nature of the way the warrants work on the back end, the tax-free nature of the transaction, the ability of the company to grow, and then giving back to the employees in the community. Because again, when you do an ESOP, nothing changes. The owners can maintain control, operating control, management control for as long as they want to stick around and continue to operate without being chased out the door, which is the complete opposite that you see oftentimes with not only the owners, but a lot of the management team when you sell out to a private equity or strategic buyer who are going to bring in their own teams to run the company. And, and in some circumstances, I've seen them dismantle the company and move the operations yeah. elsewhere and everybody loses their job. And that's you know, when you're working for it, when you're an owner of a company and, you know, whether you started it, whether your family started it, whether your grandparents started it, you know, sometimes owners have a strong tie to, you know, the legacy that's been built um, by somebody other than them that they've inherited or that they've they've been able to build themselves. They want to see that legacy continue. And that's where the, the nature of doing well by doing good really comes into play. So, And, and the other pieces, and I hate to talk politics, but both Democrats and Republicans like the ESOP strategy because it it fills in that void on both on both sides of the uh, of the equation. So politically, it's a very attractive option. Yeah, I mean, again, if you think about it, you know, there's been probably seven major la tax law changes that have taken place around ESOPs, and every time there's been a legislative change, it's actually benefited ESOPs. So, you know, it's supported by both the far left and the far right for completely different tax and political reasons. But the byproduct is, you know, Bernie Sanders, as an example, loves ESOPs because it's a redistribution of wealth in his mind. And Jeff Sessions loves the transaction on the far right side because it's a it's a it's a tax nature benefit to the selling shareholders who took on tremendous risk in building and starting businesses and deserve to be rewarded. So, you know, when you think about it, John and Michael, you know, we've talked about this before. The average American that you know, retires from a company today at age 65 has a $1,340 a month Social Security benefit check. 
and $98,000 in a retirement account. And, yeah. you know, when you think about it, you know, those people are living below the poverty line at a point in time in life when they should be able to relax and enjoy. And an ESOP isn't going to necessarily change the $1,340 a month Social Security check, but the ESOPs provide benefits statistically that are three to five times greater than what the employee, the same employee would ever receive elsewhere. And so, sure you know, the three to $500,000 Delta difference in retirement benefits for an employee, um, for somebody who's at that, that income level is a difference between living below the poverty line and living a comfortable lifestyle throughout retirement. And that's, that's just a wonderful thing to do and be able to provide. Yeah, this is great, Rick. Uh, the thanks. Thanks very much for your time. I think we're, Maybe out of time today, I believe, Eric, correct? We are. We are getting really close. Hey, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, now, I know that Copper Beach, they work nationwide. Can I assume that you do as well? Yeah, our firm um, has, uh, an, we have a national presence. Um, I didn't talk a little bit about the Capstone Headwater affiliation, but um, within the last six weeks, we have merged with Capstone Headwater, which is one of the largest investment bank M&A firms in the country in the private mid-market space. So, the, the positive is we've always been a national firm specializing in the ESOP space. We now have the back door and the partners internally that if a client decides that they want to look at the ESOP, but also um, take the company and shop in the open market and, and look at the multiple options both ways, we now have the back door and the partners internally that can do the same thing. So um, we have offices throughout the country. I live in the East Coast, um, which is why I built a relationship with Michael and John. I spent a lot of time in the Philadelphia market. And, you know, again, I, I tend to focus on the um, brightest and best in my industry that I can help. And, you know, I, I can you know, sort of, uh, uh, needless to say, those that are clients of Michael and John's, you can appreciate this and you know this. Those that aren't should look at using them um, because they're truly um, two of the best, um, not only the, the most highly um, professional and have the highest level of integrity, but truly they are the brightest and best in what they do in helping yeah. preserve clients net worth and show them in effective ways that they can keep what they earn, keep what they have, and then effectively transition that over to those that they want to see benefit from it long-term. And that's one reason why I just, I just adore them and like working with them. And I appreciate the opportunity today. Maybe I should bring you the wine. <laughs> that was fantastic Thank guys you, Rick. that was very uh, yeah, that was, that was unexpected you. but we always appreciate your support of uh, what we do here at copper beach and uh, as well you're you're one of our our favorite folks to work with as well so thanks Thank again you. for your time today uh michael you have any other thoughts no i think this this was great uh just you know again i think that Thinking about the exit of your business is a daunting task, but I think having uh, somebody like like Rick and his firm is a is a great resource to have, especially mm -hmm. now with this um, this recent uh, merger. I think he can really come and help you uh, in a variety of ways. Yeah, absolutely, John and Michael. Thank you so much for bringing Rick on. It was it was fantastic. And if you're listening to this podcast, and, and there's a lot of information, I I would have gone through multiple pencils if I was taking notes like that. If you're interested, reach out to Copper Beach. They've got a great relationship with Rick, and they can answer questions. They can put you in touch with him if, he's, if he needs to field some questions for you, but they're always available. And I just want to thank everyone again for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. 
click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services Incorporated, a member of FINRA SIPC Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of APFS and APA. Any opinions expressed in this forum are not the opinion or view of American Portfolios Financial Services Incorporated APFS or American Portfolios Advisors Incorporated APA and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors.